This episode of Under the Banyan Tree was recorded in front of a live audience at HSBC Hong Kong back in late August. It covers many of the key themes that shaped markets and economies across Asia in 2023, and with those themes still very relevant as we approach the year-end, we wanted to replay the discussion for you this week. As always, analyst certifications, disclosures and disclaimers must be viewed on the link attached to your media player. And with that, it's over to your regular hosts. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our first ever live recording of the Under the Banyan Tree podcast, where we put Asian markets and economics in context. My name is Fred Newman, Chief Asia Economist at HSBC. And I'm Harold van der Linde, your other host, and I'm the Chief Equity Strategist for HSBC. Um, great to see so many this, uh, this evening. Uh, we have three guests here that I would like to introduce to you. The first one is Jing Yu, who is our Chief China Economist at HMC Global Research, Michelle Kwok next to me, who is the head of Asian real estate research. And we got Frank Lee, who is our head of technology research. And he's gonna talk a bit about AI, artificial intelligence later on. And we wanna jump right in. I think China is obviously the topic du jour. Uh, Jing, let's start with you. How bad are things really, if you look at the Chinese economy at the moment? I think the pessimism may not be quite justified because the hard data still show quite some bright spot. We see a very clear uh, disconnect between, uh, for example, the housing sector performance versus the uh, uh, service uh, sectors in general. Uh, we have actually uh, seen the data supporting the strong service sector performance including the newly uh, created uh, statistics by the National Bureau of Statistics, which is showing the service retail sales, more than 20% year-on-year growth for the first seven months. And if we go to all kinds of uh, high-frequency data, uh, traffic jam, the um, uh, you know, uh, uh, box office revenue, et cetera, those are all doing well. And uh, let's speak the EV sector. Um, we have seen the EV export basically more than double this year. So it's not that bad, let's put it that way. Jing, you were also in China not too long ago. You told me that you tried to get into, what was it, some supermarket in Hangzhou? And how long did people line up? Yeah, this is the news uh, circulated on the uh, social media. Basically, Hangzhou opened a Costco. I'm not sure whether this is the first one, but people uh, are willing to wait for two hours just to get into the supermarket and another five hours to check out. And then on the uh, social media, they said it's a 300 yuan, uh, you know, uh, kind of experience, but still worth it. A lot of more people. So there are things doing pretty okay, but the policymakers, at least the market expect that policymakers are going to do something, right? And so far, the response has been rather underwhelming. Is that fair to say? Uh, what do you expect they're going to do? Yeah, exactly. So, so far we have seen lots of talks and incremental measures at best. And this is very different from the previous cycles where the Chinese government usually would rush in to uh, either inject a large liquidity or launch uh, the uh, big infrastructure investment or lifting the housing restrictions one way or the other in order to boost a strong recovery. But this time around, they'd rather see uh, a more organic consumption-driven uh, growth. But Jing, let me, let me challenge you a little bit here. Um, 
even if Chinese policymakers wanted to do something, what can they really do? In the past, they built infrastructure to get the economy going again. They reflated the housing market. What, what is there really that they could conceivably do that would excite us about it? Aren't they constrained with too much debt? Aren't they constrained with demographics? Aren't they constrained with a property market that has gotten too big? What, what are you really hoping for that they could deliver that would, say, get people excited again about investing in China? That's right. You're exactly right about in the past we have built too many uh, infrastructure projects, maybe too many homes as well. And uh, actually the debt overhang also means a lot of resources, a lot of capital have been locked into those sectors. Uh, now China is probably looking for a structural change where the future growth could be driven by first uh, private consumption and maybe manufacturing, operating and green transition. But at the same time, because the housing and uh, you know, uh, infrastructure have represented uh, such a big share uh, in GDP, so they need a smooth transition towards the uh, new growth engines. Now, we're talking about housing here. So, Michelle, uh, that's a sector that you look at in, in detail. Can you give us a bit of a description of how bad is the picture? So certainly, Harold, um, is a very difficult time for the market. We had hoped that a couple of years ago, as things continue to evolve, we should be clear by now. But it so happened that we continue to be disappointed by the pace of deterioration of the market. It's fragile. Mm -hmm. You know, we have had to take our numbers down directionally um, to rethink about what that practical scenario would be in China. Um Let's take a step back, and when we talk about the, the Chinese housing market, from your vantage point, has the psychology been broken? Because that seems to me very important here. We've had for decades rising prices in real estate. People wanted to get on the real estate ladder. Now we've seen a year and a half of probably sliding prices, not officially, but maybe unofficially. Do you think that the psychology has been broken, that it'd be very hard to convince people to buy apartments again? Or do you think really... Uh, there's still a lot of pent-up demand that ultimately can be unleashed. It's actually very tough because home price expectation is something that we all look at. We buy when there is expectation that home price would continue to increase, but clearly that's not the case. Um, but more importantly, I do think there is pent-up demand. Um, you know, there are still households looking to purchase a home because there's a need to. For instance, um, if you're a family, you need to send your kids to school, um, you need to be in a certain district, then you'll be quite picky in terms of the location. But clearly, in terms of thinking about what we should be expecting now, you know, versus a year or two years ago, the size of the pie has shrunk very meaningfully. So yes, there is demand, but as a willing home buyer, they will be a lot more picky in terms of what they get for pricing and also the location of the home. Um, Jing, to bring you back here, the Chinese property market is probably 20% of GDP, uh, conservatively measured. Um, that has huge implications. What do you think is then the underlying growth rate for China? Surely the 6% rates are over that we saw in the past. Can you give us a hint of where we are in the next few years in terms of what you think the potential of the economy is if property is kind of falling away as a growth driver? Right. So ironically, if actually now the expectation is housing prices may not go up, uh, at least not so rapidly or even going down, certain um, people who haven't bought a home may feel less pressure 
because they don't have to save so much for the down payment. So that could, to some extent, help with the consumption. At the same time, we see a clear um, uh, change of the mentality from the government. Maybe in the past, they focused more on the hard infrastructure, but then in the future, they probably will spend more on uh, soft infrastructure, such as granting the migrant workers access to the uh, public health, public school, etc. That can also support uh, consumption. So I think private consumption is something uh, to look forward to. On top of that, now it's still small, but uh, probably uh, you know, starting with the EV sector and some other sectors uh, uh, belonging to this new economy can uh, grow much bigger. So that would be the uh, new driver as well. Uh, last but not least, uh, China is very uh, ambitious on the green transition. I think the green transition actually cut into every single sector in the economy. So those are all quite uh, promising, in my view. So, so still promising growth potential in the medium term, but uh, maybe last question for you, uh, Michelle, is we still need to get there. That is, next two, three, four months, we still have a lot of hurdles to pass. Do you get a sense that there's still a bit of pain to come uh, when it comes to the Chinese housing market? We have obviously big headlines um, that we grappled with in the last few weeks when it came to China. Markets are quite on edge a little bit. From your perspective, looking at housing names, developers, uh, is there a bit more pain to come? Certainly, I do think more pain. But in terms of assessing the level of pain, I think it really depends on when we would see if there is one, a meaningful policy package. And what I want to talk about meaningful policy package here, what I really mean is to give these developers the much needed liquidity support that they need so we can buy more time. Otherwise, I think more defaults will come. But at least on the bright side, we see that some of the leading developers, particularly the state-owned names, they are still growing, they are still performing quite well. Will that liquidity support come? I think on one thing, uh, over the past several weeks, maybe, uh, we see the price controls have been relaxed. So, you know, we used to have both price ceiling, price floor, both binding in different cities, uh, preventing the market to clear. Now that uh, maybe some of the price cuts in uh, uh, certain cities can attract more buyers, and to uh, that extent, that already naturally more funding available. Maybe less profit, but at least uh, you know the market is moving. On top of that, we also see more talks about uh, you know the, the the three arrows they call it, different channels of uh, raising fund that is coming as well. Hey Fred, so this has implications for you as well in terms of how this um, impacts the rest of the region, right? So we see weaker growth in China coming through. Um, that, that will be impacting the rest of the region. Uh, where are the areas where maybe that are less sensitive or more sensitive to, uh, to, to weaker growth in China? Well, I, I think what we just heard, uh, the challenges near term in China, even if we say medium term, there's stabilization coming through, is essentially that we're seeing disinflationary pressures, deflationary pressures coming out of, out of China. Uh, one, one just statistic, to share statistics here, um, China's housing construction sector uses one quarter of global steel demand. Uh, in three years, it loses enough cement to turn the entire Great Britain into a car park. That just gives you a sense of the size of the construction sector. Um, and so if that declines, then that puts downward pressure on commodities, less steel consumption, and that means 
disinflation for the rest of the world. We now have, for example, reports of Chinese steel producers putting steel on the global market, undercutting the prices of others. And that spreads pain around the region. Yeah, that's pain if you sell cement, of course, but it's good if you're buying cement and if you're importing commodities, right? And I'm, for example, think about India. They, they could benefit from this. Is that correct? That's right. So we have economies that compete directly with China, like Korea, like Vietnam, for example, like Japan, ultimately are undercut in global export markets because they compete directly with China, and that's disinflationary. But India is a, the opposite, has the opposite issue, because India imports a lot of commodities, and so weaker commodity prices is actually good for India, and hence we see the Indian economy actually doing quite well at the moment. But let's bring Southeast Asia in, because of course, Southeast Asia needs China as a big export market, very important, yeah. but they also compete with China, so it's kind of more, you know, not clear where Southeast Asia falls in terms of the growth prospects. How do you think about the equity markets in Southeast Asia? Yeah, so th there's a couple of things going on in the Southeast Asian equity markets. First of all, we see some of these markets widening up. All sorts of new companies are coming to these markets, so that's good. We see this in Vietnam, we see this in Indonesia, for example, as well. Secondly, there are, similar to India, certain growth drivers. So uh, next week, I'm going to be in Java. I'm, uh, as you know, I'm doing a bit of temple hunting and stuff like that. Um, so I need to travel through Java. And certain places that would take five or six hours to get to only five years ago, there's now a highway. So access there has significantly improved. And that means that factories can go there. That means employment opportunities go up. And, and that creates a new consumer market there. So there are kind of these long-term drivers over there as well. But of course, there are also buyers of, of, of commodities, right? Uh, Harold, you lost me there a little bit. You just said you're temple hunting in Indonesia. Can you explain that, please? So I'm, I'm writing a book about the 14th century Java, a very interesting period, the rise of China, Kublai Khan, and, uh, and how Indonesia responded to that. And in order to understand what happened, you have to go to the temples, because on the temples, there's the stories have been carved into stone. So I'm visiting about 50 temples and trying to figure out what actually happened in, uh, in, in those places. So we all had a nice summer holiday, but uh, Harold spent it uh, in Tamil Nadu and in Indonesia going to temples in 40 degree heat. So everybody exactly. has their own joy. And my wife joins me and thinks this is actually fun. So imagine that. Um, so, um, so that's what I'm going to do over the next, uh, over the next three weeks. But just to put that aside, the, the, the old temples uh, and the access that it is improving there, you of course have also that there is demand for commodities there. Uh, Indonesia is a large producer of nickel and the Chinese, they're making electric vehicles, you need big batteries for it. And of course that, that, that means that they are investing there. And that should have all sorts of macro benefits um, for Indonesia as well, Fred. It does, we talked about weaker commodity prices a little bit because China's economy is not doing too well, but Indonesia is an exception because it is producing commodities that are feeding into the energy transition. And Jing, you mentioned China doubled its EV, EV car exports this year, actually becoming the number one exporter of vehicles potentially this year, and a lot of these uh, minerals are needed to be sourced from Indonesia. So that's a, a, a permanent boost to the Indonesian economy, even if China is slowing down. Yeah, that's right. And then there is a third driver. So you've got domestic growth, right? Investments, you have demand for commodities, and then you have supply chains moving into, from, from China into ASEAN. Is that correct? And I think Frank here, can maybe give us a couple of examples of what I, I think we should bring in, in Frank on this because <laughs> yeah. before you and I keep taking this conversation over, yeah. uh, Frank, 
before we start talking about AI, um, what are you seeing on tech supply chains moving to Southeast Asia? Yeah, that's a great question, Fred. I, I think if you think about the overall supply chain relocation, it's been ongoing for quite some time. And I think the initial phase is really about the cost structure of mainland China has been going up. Right? They raised their labor costs quite aggressively over a 20-year period, where it became kind of uneconomical for certain industries to stay there. And it happened first with a lot of textile. But it was more difficult to move the tech supply chain because there's a cluster effect. Right? So, um, but that clearly has started, this unwinding has started to happen. So you know, I think there's a concept that people talk about is China plus one. Basically, you, know, you have a supply chain in China, uh, mainland China, you'll be servicing the domestic market, but you're going to replicate that supply chain outside. And I think you are seeing that trend ongoing, and it's going to be a sustainable trend for the next couple of years. Uh, and you see, you know, if you look at by country, you know, Vietnam is probably the most, uh, you know, uh, most attractive choice uh, for, you know, a lot of the assembly. Um, but if you go into semiconductor testing uh, and assembly, it's Malaysia. Right? Penang has been, it's quite interesting, because Penang is a place that was 30 years ago a big focus for semiconductor investments. A lot of multinationals had invested in uh, Penang. Uh, they have the resources. And then 20 years ago, basically, people moved to China, mainland China. You, you can't escape the vortex of China, right? But now it's reversing again, and you see people coming back. So that's interesting. It's reversing. But it's, of course, there's another big, big trend in the tech world, and that is artificial intelligence. Now, before we talk about some of the you know, specific implications, Laid out for us, um, how you know how many of these chips do you actually need? How expensive is this stuff? Um, give us a sense of you know what it takes in terms of the the computing power that sits behind AI. We're all amazed by what AI can do, but but what, what is it in terms of the tech hardware that sits behind us? Give us a sense of you know how big the scale is. Yeah, that's a good question, Fred. The answer the answer is I don't really know how much computational power it needs. Um, Nobody knows yet. I think uh, if you think about, you know, this year is all about AI. The rage is all about AI. But nine months ago, 10 months ago, no one really noticed this. So basically, I think what you saw was ChatGPT was this lightning in a bottle that basically got people excited about it. But what has proven to be the case is that real investment is going on now in, in AI. And we're really seeing the infrastructure being built right now. Um, you know, I think initially when the AI craze took off, there were a lot of people that were skeptical. They were saying, is this just like Metaverse? Uh, a couple of years ago, everybody kept talking about Metaverse, but then you know, we have seen that no one really talks about Metaverse now. But AI, I think, is a different story because you know, there's a lot of uh, applications that are still yet to be realized, but the investment is there. So Frank, um, NVIDIA chips, how much do they cost now these days? And, and some of these servers, uh, can you give a, a, a price tag to that as well? Sure. So if you think about you know, the amazing price power that NVIDIA has managed to generate this year, they used to make graphic cards for high-end gaming. Right? And, and the, the average selling price for a, a graphic card was $2,000, which was very expensive for, if you're, you know, for the average user. But now that they're going into AI, they're making $25,000 US dollars for a graphic card, right? It's a 10x Amazing, increase. Right? Yeah. But if you add to the fact that they're actually not only selling cards anymore, they're actually selling the entire system, then the price point of a system could be over 200,000 US dollars. 
So imagine how much the, the multiple expansion. So go from two to 200,000. Yeah. You, you also talk about different stages of AI. I think uh, three stages, if I'm not mistaken. Can you just briefly tell me what that is? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the, probably the easiest, the, probably the, a, a more simplistic way of thinking about AI that we're looking at is that we think there's a multiple stages of investment. Stage one uh, is, I think, really right now about feeding the large language models, it's about training them right now. Uh, and this is where, you know, NVIDIA has a huge dominance. No one really competes against them in this space. So during this early phase, it's, uh, they're pr probably capturing 80% of the entire value. And then this is being driven by all these hyperscalers that are continuing to invest. Stage two is really when you move from training to what they call inference, where you start deducting with AI. This is an interesting opportunity because uh, there could be more players. Um, specifically, people are talking about using these uh, uh, application-specific ICs. So these are chips that are customized. So you see cloud companies want to design their own chip, right? Uh, and then, then the third stage of AI is what I like to think is the blue sky scenario. And this is basically when you think about AI going away from the cloud but toward your device. So basically, you could have AI functionality directly on your smartphone, on your PCs. Now, this is a blue sky scenario is because that could drive a big replacement in smartphones and PCs again, which we all know has been challenging. So that's really, I think, the, the ultimate uh, positive scenario people look at. Um, you talked about NVIDIA, which is a US-based company. Um, how many companies in Asia are now able right now to really capitalize on it? You said NVIDIA is capturing 80% of that, that, you know, that incremental dollars going into AI. Are there Korean companies, Taiwanese companies that are cashing in as well, or is it, is it too early to, set, to tell? This is, I think in this stage one, uh, this is really one winner right now that dominates. So uh, just to look as an example, um, we all know about TSMC is the manufacturer for all of NVIDIA's chips. So you would think they would benefit. But if you think about the value of how much TSMC makes per chip, they make about five to 600 US dollars per chip. NVIDIA makes $25,000, right? So there's a huge imbalance in terms of, uh, you know, this, uh, 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 in terms of the, the, the power position. Um, so I think this is the struggle is that, uh, you know, one company is currently in stage one dominating so much. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the beneficiaries for companies in the hardware supply chain are there, but they're not all, they're not getting the same benefit as much as, as one company. Well, what we very often see is that a new concept arises, a new technology arises. Uh, there's initially exponential growth. A few companies benefit from that. We're there with that at, at the moment with, uh, with, with these chip makers. Um, but then all sorts of bottlenecks and challenges emerge that are not always easily identifiable in early stages. But uh, if you look at that, what, where do you think some of the risk flies or some of the challenges lie, right, uh, lie for uh, AI? I think the, the big question that I think hasn't really been asked is really how do you monetize? How do you make money on AI, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, this hasn't really been an, a question that's been addressed. So I think once you get out of this investment stage, there will be questions that people are going to start looking at. You know? And I think this is where, uh, you know, is it going to be the, the cloud providers that provide, you know, that, that can make money on it? Is it going to be Microsoft, uh, Microsoft who can charge people a subscription fee for using AI uh, in, you know, in, in things like you know, Microsoft Office, right? So I think those are going to be the challenges that come later. Um, but for now, I think it's just, you know, people, you know, the hardware makers are 
enjoying the early benefits, which is really just about you know building. The it reminds me a bit how you really made money during the gold rush by buying companies that produce shovels and picks rather than actually the gold miners, because we were very uncertain at this point. Yes, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, it's been an excellent discussion. I want to thank you all for coming um, and everybody for listening around the world uh, to the podcast, for joining us here, literally under the banyan uh, tree. And I suspect, Fred, that this won't be the last time that we're going to do such a live event. Absolutely. Uh, big thanks to our guests, uh, Jing Liu, Michelle Kwok and Frank Lee. Thanks for joining us today. And if you're not already subscribed to Under the Banyan Tree, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's absolutely right. And with that, we thank you all.